I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. I am in a small room in uh, the Sharjah Entrepreneurship Festival. It is, if you haven't heard of Sharjah, it's the cultural capital of the, uh, of the United Arab Emirates. Definitely one of my favorite cities on earth. So much culture, so much literature, so much uh, thoughts and philosophies and so on. And when you do that in a, in a Middle Eastern uh, setup, uh, it becomes quite... Um, involved in the old times and how things have been and how things should be. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. The Shira, which is the um, organizing uh, entity of the Sharjah Entrepreneurship Festival, is sort of a non-for-profit that's attempting to help entrepreneurs become successful in the region is a beautiful objective when you think about it, typical of the United Arab Emirates being so supportive of its citizens and its residents. So it's a beautiful place. I spoke here in the morning, which was the main reason I came to the event. So I spoke about happiness, believe it or not, because entrepreneurs need a lot of happiness, but they need it most nowadays, because nowadays we are heading into a year that is probably going to be one of the more stressful years in, uh, in our recent history. Lots of uncertainty, lots of changes, which basically made my other big objective from being here, uh, the opportunity to spend time with my guest today, April Rini. April is the author of a book called Flux, which is basically about, um, the subtitle is Eight Superpowers uh, for Thriving in Constant Change. And we got in touch on LinkedIn, was it? Mm -hmm. And we spoke about what I normally do and that April was going to be here. And I got blown away by the work that she's doing because April doesn't seem to be very prescriptive or instructive in terms of what you need to do, but rather uh, reflective in terms of what suits you so that you can thrive in, a, in times of change. And I thought this would be a very, very suitable start for our slow-mo conversations in 2023. So very, very lucky to have you here, April. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope the jet lag is not too bad. Thank you so much, Mo. Not so bad. Coming from the West Coast of the United States, so 12 hours, but it's better today than it was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and normally for me, it gets worse on the third day. I'm not, I'm not predicting anything yeah. here, but, uh, you we're know. We're going to hope not because that's when my keynote is. Oh, but we're good. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm really happy to be here with we're, you. Though. We're very happy that you're here. What's your impression of the place so far? Oh, my goodness. So the festival is amazing. And Sharjah, you described it spot on. Yeah. I don't want to be partial amongst the Emirates, but I think I have a very soft spot in my heart for Sharjah. Mm. Um, the, as you said, the cultural traditions, the mm. literature, the art, the galleries. Also, and I say this as somebody who's lived in big cities as well as small towns and access to lots of nature, it has a really human scale. 
True. There's yeah. something that's much, I joke, it's not Boston in the US, but Boston is, is a big city, but it has this human scale because of its history mm. and the cobbled stone pathways True. you can walk through. And I really appreciate that. I think, I think it's always been that Sharjah wanted to balance preserving its culture mm -hmm. and as along with the uh, advancements. So, so that's th definitely the true nature of the place. Were we hospitable enough, generous enough? Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to transport you all back home. Um, very much. Yeah. It's just been an amazing, warm welcome. Yeah. Um, being seen as not just a speaker or a participant, but a friend, yeah. almost like extended family. Good. So the hospitality has been absolutely stellar. Yeah, I, lo I love this about this part of the world, you know, the whole of the Emirates for sure. And, mm -hmm. you know, Saudi and other places. What's mostly misunderstood about the region, which is not covered in the news, is how serious we take it when we have a guest over. Like, you know, to us, it's, it goes back into the culture and tradition where the typical Arabic or Middle Eastern tribe had the obligation to welcome travelers across the desert because if they didn't welcome them, they would die basically. Mm -hmm. And so if you've built your home around that oasis and people walked by, the obligation was to be hospitable and generous and, you know, a good a good host if you want. And mm -hmm. I think it extends into the into the current world of the Middle East. And I think it's one of my favorite things about the region. So we're glad to have you. It's really wonderful that you're here. You and I connected on a, on a very interesting note. We both were very intolerant to many foods in our early <laughs> lives. Is that, is that, uh, yeah. t t tell me a bit about that. That was not where I expected we would find <laughs> common connection among other many other things I did, but this was a kind of a pleasant surprise insofar as food intolerances can be pleasant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was born and raised with severe food allergies for most, well, my entire childhood, although it didn't take, it It was diagnosed first when I was about 18 months, but I, mm. I basically spent my infancy quite sick and they couldn't figure out why, but it turns out, and this is maybe, well, I'll st start there anyway, um, I was allergic to my mother's milk. Oh, which is a really strange thing to have happen because I was raised on formula. I was raised on soy milk before Man. because I was allergic to dairy. I was allergic to wheat. I was allergic to eggs and to chicken and to citrus. So oranges and lemons. I was allergic to pretty much everything under the sun. And it took about two years to diagnose that as a child. And it was excruciating, I think, especially for my mom. Mm. But then once we figured out what was going on, it was as though the fog lifted because mm. all of a sudden you realize that you could feel good. You could not feel sick I know and that as moment, a child. Yeah. 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 And it was strange as a child that that was all I had ever known. Mm. And then it gave me basically a great sense of appreciation for how, how sensitive our bodies are, how important it is to care for them. But also, and I was joking with you earlier about this, there were so few things I could eat. I became really grateful for those things oh. and it teaches you gratitude I remember the first time I was able to eat an apple because I was mm -hmm. allergic to them and then I outgrew them in my teenage years. And the first time I ate an apple and just how how sweet it tasted and how I could, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> it, it sounds so simple. And yet every time, the first time I got to try a blueberry, the first time I, I was allergic to chocolate and sugar and all sweets, the first time I tried an M&M. I was Man. like in heaven. <laughs> That's life. Yeah. That's it. it. It's funny though, because it resets your baseline. You know, it's it's so beautiful that you speak about this because actually it's one of the topics I, I constantly talk about is, is the idea that if you're able to eat chocolate, you take it for granted. Mm -hmm. You just don't recognize how much of a blessing that is. You don't recognize an apple. 
Like, mm-hmm. do, do you understand that? Yeah. Very few people are yeah. allergic to apples. So, you know, you t- just take it for granted. They're thrown away, you know, thrown around you in all supermarkets. You look at them and you go like, nah, I don't like them. Yeah. Right. But the truth is, if you've never had the chance of experiencing this and you experience it for the first time, it's such a wonderful experience. You, you suddenly realize what a blessing it is to have those things. Yeah. I was the opposite way, though. <laughs> My life as an executive was I didn't know that I was allergic or intolerant to anything, right? But I knew since I became a very, very stressed executive in my 30s, that when I was going on a flight, it would have meant a a week of suffering until I got home, right? And every time I got on a flight, I didn't know why, but by the time I was four hours into the flight, I start feeling bloated and headaches and tired and so on. So I would tell myself, okay, that's it. Uh, I'm really not going to overdo food this this trip. I'm just going to stick to very light cheese sandwiches with tomatoes. And, you know, that I didn't understand. There could be anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But turns out I was allergic to, not allergic, but severely intolerant to gluten. Still am actually reasonably intolerant. And to lactose, to dairy. So, so <laughs> I was basically living on the exact recipe that is supposed to kill me. Exactly. And, and and it's just so confusing, which I think is very much to the core of the way you look at life. Life sometimes is so complicated and it's so multifaceted with so many parameters that you don't really know what's wrong, what's happening. And it's very hard to find your sweet spot, your balance. Yeah, and I, I might be jumping a little bit ahead of the conversation too. I do want to add though, and we're running so fast. Yeah. We're just off to chase the next thing, this, that, and the other. We don't actually pause to slow down to say what is going on here Mm -hmm. and i love though the the tomato and cheese sandwich where it's like that is a very healthy sandwich yeah it's like the minimal completely wrong for you (laughs) so you were making wise choices based on one particular filter on the world and what constituted health without delving into necessarily what's right for you. Yeah. And it's been fascinating. This is just more of a PS. I outgrew the vast majority of my allergies, except for eggs. Eggs hung on forever. Mm. But even so, if you can imagine being allergic to 200 things and then having 199 of those more yeah, or less like, eliminated. Eggs, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but then when I was in my 30s, I had adult onset, effectively, allergies come back that weren't exactly the same. But it was interesting because I reverted back to that gratitude baseline. Mm. And then I took the approach that you're talking about to the sense of like massive experimentation Mm. of I'm not going to assume that it's any one food, like the things I think I'm eating that are quite healthy, Mm. including foods that have always been safe for me, Mm. could now be making me sick. I kind of had to go back to first principles and say, I okay, there's the, there's the overall what would healthy foods be. Mm. But then even within that, you start doing this experimentation of Did try half too? an apple, try, yeah. you know, and because sometimes I'm, I'm guessing for you too, it's not binary, um, like a, a nut allergy of like, you're fine or it's death. Mm. There's a range. Absolutely. And you can have half an apple, but mm. a full one, no. And milk is the same way for me my whole life. Mm. I couldn't drink a, a liter of milk. That would, yeah. that would, that would make <laughs> yeah. most people sick. But, you know, a little bit in my coffee is okay. Mm. So it's funny, though, too, because maybe this is a, a, a broader message. Those things that when I look back at my four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old self, I have profound empathy but sadness mm. for this little kid who I would go to a birthday party at my friend's. 
and I couldn't eat the birthday cake and I couldn't have the ice cream and I couldn't have the soda. And I would be sent with like my own little cupcake, which was made out of millet, which is a grain that was safe for me. But, you know, it was a sort of socially ostracizing experience Yeah. that at the same time taught me what healthy eating habits are, mm. taught me the gratitude of being able to try one new thing. Mm. And more broadly, though, this lesson that carries through to adulthood that extends in many ways beyond food, beyond any particular thing. Yeah. It's amazing when you talk about it because one of my most fond memories of my life is the four month long meditation exercise. I call it a meditation exercise. I actually wrote about it in my third book. The idea of finding your intolerances can be done through a blood test or it can be done through, you know, whatever Chinese practices of chi and so on. But at a point in my life, I, when I recognized that allergies are real and intolerances are real, I started with removing every allergen from my, my diet and then waiting 21 days. So I had a very, very lean diet for 21 days. And then you'd start to add them. And I was, for example, allergic to peanuts. Mm. And I promise you, April, when I had the third peanut, I would have a piercing headache, like a spear going through my, my skull, really, mm -hmm. just because now I'm so desensitized. I was desensitized to it, and now I can feel it, right? Mm -hmm. And that reflection and connection to your body is such an interesting customization exercise that no doctor is ever going to do for you. And, and despite the fact that I wouldn't eat so many of those things for three, four, four months, I introduced them very slowly and so on and so forth. It's, I believe it was one of the deepest connections I've ever had to my body. It's, yeah. It was really, really quite empowering. Well, and I think the word detoxify is yeah. very apt. Yeah. Detoxifying your system. Mm. And you realize how many toxins, here we could say literal toxins and figurative toxins, you know, yes. unhealthy people in your life and other things beyond food. But when you actually do the detoxification process of the chemicals, the elements, the foods that are in your body, and give your body a chance to go still, mm. go silent effectively, mm. And then you start introducing them. It's like your body becomes hyper aware of what's in it. Mm. And the stuff that's good for it, I don't know. In my experience, I find it's like my body has never felt better. Absolutely. And then the crystal clarity, though, too, of when something is off or wrong, it doesn't take a normal size portion. It can be one peanut, three Absolutely. peanuts. Yeah. It happens really quickly. But again, gratitude for your body's communication. Mm -hmm. Gratitude that your body can actually convey this information if you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a theme, I think, in our conversation around awareness and self-awareness and what are we paying attention to? But how much wisdom our bodies contain if we listen to them mm. and if we let them exist in a state in which they can thrive. And I think there are so many ways in which individually and collectively we're not doing that today. Mm. However, the ability to do so is entirely within our reach. Absolutely. We, there's no element of control that doesn't give you that ultimate fundamental agency of taking care of your own body. Yeah, and I think there is a joy in doing that as well. I think it's, uh, it's really, Absolutely. really uh, an eye-opening and a very connecting experience. Mm -hmm. I want to get to your work. Believe it or not, listeners, this is not uh, April's work. Your, April's work will blow you away even more. But I also want to talk about your uh, personal experience. So like me, you shared a loss that in early in your life that redefines your life. If you'd be open to share that. Absolutely. I welcome talking about it. I always have I to give that I caveat find, these days. I think that's so beautiful in yeah. our West, you know, in most Western cultures, sadly, we, we've, 
We've stopped being vulnerable, I think. And I think vulnerability is, again, one of the most beautiful ways we can connect. And when you shared the story with me, I feel I hugged you already. Mm. Like, I know you. Mm -hmm. I, I can relate to you more than just our minds connecting, if you want. Yeah. No, and I think there's a... It's almost like a special club we're part of that I don't wish on <laughs> others, but it's a very, very precious club to be part of. Mm. So my story with loss um, happened when I was 20. I was at university. I was halfway around the world. And I got the proverbial phone call where I have one sister who's sitting on the other end of the phone. And she says, are you sitting down? Oh. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and she's uh, almost five years older than me. And we were not particularly close at the time. And I'm thinking to myself, what could be wrong? Like, if something happened to mom, dad would be calling. If something happened to dad, mom would be calling. If something happened to you, either of them, like, why are you calling me? And she said, I need to tell you something. Mom and dad just died in a car accident and you need to come home. Mm. And there was this like, like that moment of, she didn't just say that. This I'm watching a really bad movie here. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Also to give a little bit of context, um, so my, both of my parents died in a car crash. The first funeral I ever went to in my whole life mm -hmm. was the funeral of both of my parents. Mm -hmm. And I did not know what grief was or that kind of grief. I did not know how to grieve. I, now I can say there is no recipe for it. Yeah, that threw me into the deep end, not just of grief, but of uncertainty of mm -hmm. like, okay, what else can everything just changed. Yeah. Like whatever metric it is, whether it's my family, that changed. Whether it's my own sense of self and identity and purpose and lots of things, that changed. Being self-sufficient, I have to take care of myself. There's no backstop anymore. Mm. What does that look like? Mm. Uh, my view on the future and what matters. And the way I often will phrase it is, at the age of 20, I started asking a really different kind of question than my peers were asking. And I now joke I had effectively like a midlife crisis when I was 20 because I was asking those questions, which was like, if I were to die tomorrow, because, oh, guess what? People can die tomorrow. People yeah. who are fully healthy and young and fit and have no reason to die and had no intention of dying can just be gone. If I were to die tomorrow, what would the world? So I don't mean my ego. I don't mean social media. I don't mean a boss. I don't mean people I want to impress. I mean, what would the world need me to do today? And such a beautiful question. Yeah, it, it, it started to be kind of a guiding light of my journey from there. Um, and I think what's interesting is at the age of 20, I mean, I meet lots of really wise young people, but at 20 to be saying something so crystal clear, because what it led me to do was make a very different set of decisions mm -hmm. about my future as my future evolved than my peers would have. And I got so much flack for like, what do you mean you're not going to, you know, one example you're not going to join an investment bank or a consulting firm upon graduation. You're not going to climb the corporate ladder. And with all due respect to consulting firms and investment banks, but you know, I was like, if I'm going to die tomorrow, the world doesn't need me as a consultant. The world <laughs> needs me to be doing some very different things. Yeah. And it was really hard initially in those early days because people just, and a lot of people were genuinely concerned for my emotional well-being, like cool. just survival. But you, what I realize now is I was so hellbent on staying true to myself and doing what seemed to make sense for the world, for the greater good, mm. because I realized how fragile any one of us, any of our lives are. And so, so that's my entry in and I'm happy to talk more about it. It's, it's funny just as a footnote, 
um, for at least the first 10 years after they died, I was very hungry, very eager to talk to people about it. I wanted to keep their memory alive. And it was a way for me to process the grief and figure out what to do. And it was often other people, I mean, and I say this very respectfully, it was like I put a hand grenade into the conversation in the middle of the room. And other people were like, they didn't know what to say. And I I just wanted to keep telling them, like, you don't need to say anything. I know you don't know what to say. I just need to have you witness and be present. And what I realized, though, is that I I spent several years not talking about it, just Mm. realizing that it was more painful than not to not talk about it. But I continued to write about it and and share with close loved ones. Um, And then sometime later, as some of these other trends and patterns around change and uncertainty started to pop up, I realized that actually my personal story was it was a key part of a much bigger, broader narrative going beyond me and going beyond grief and death, but really looking at the state of humanity, if you will. Uh, which is, which is, you know, in, in a very interesting way, it's definitely grieving all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. my, my brilliant, brilliant co-author and, and my partner in unstressable.com, the membership, mm-hmm. we wrote unstressable first and mm-hmm. we were so excited b- about the idea that we wrote 480 pages and showed, yeah, we just kept (laughs) writing. And then we showed that to our publisher and she smiled and said, not going to do that. You know, you have to, uh, you have to shorten it somehow. And so we took a full section that we wrote about grief. We're turning it into another book. We call it the nine beasts of grief. And one of them is this, one of them, most people don't understand that, that a grieving person is so lonely because you're unable to even bring up the topic because people freak out. Like, you know, what do we do with you now? So, you know, do we hug you? Do we cry with you? Mm -hmm. Do we not tell you not to cry? Or do we tap Mm -hmm. you on the back and say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. And so that loneliness is a major beast when you're going through one of the most difficult experiences of your life. But like you said, loss and grief are very similar, believe it or not, from the silliness of losing your mobile phone and the quick process of like, I lost this, it's outside my control. What else can I lose now? What is the, you know, if what if someone finds it, what will they do with it? All of those, that questioning, believe it or not, is interestingly similar, even though, of course, much milder in magnitude and amplitude than, than actually losing someone you love. But it becomes so interesting when you realize that we're almost grieving all the time. Yeah, well, and if I can add a different layer, this sparked what you're saying. You're, you're absolutely right. And the fluidity, the, the flux of life. Of, the there is never, it is never a moment of just pure gain or pure loss or happiness or sadness. It is an ebb and flow. And the sooner we can get comfortable with that, which is hard for a lot of people, I think the better we will be as humans. But I was reminded this sense of loneliness. And I, I do have to be very, you know, careful where I had a few really close friends and like, they know who they are. <laughs> that that really were there for me and 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 cried with me and knew they couldn't fix it but yeah. like there were a few but on the whole I would you know introduce myself at like a cocktail party hi who are you I'm like I'm April I lost both my parents it was like like the whole room went empty right yeah, yeah. I was toxic for dating I was just it was I was a bit of a train wreck mm-hmm. but I do remember thinking to myself because losing both of your parents in one go is Again, not something I would, and yeah, it it was absolutely the worst thing I've been through. I think one of the worst things I will likely be through in my life. I know there's more unknowns and more hardship coming just in terms of life, the life, the cycle of life. 
but it was right up there with like, I don't think, I remember telling myself, if I can get through this, I'm going to be able to get through a lot in life. Yeah. But also thinking to myself, gosh, this happened early. I don't have, there is no playbook for this. (laughs) There is no script for this. You kind of got to get through it. But I remember in those moments of, of feeling so alone, it was like, right, because I don't know anybody else who's 20 and has lost both their parents. I took some comfort, oddly, in feeling like, right, you are having to blaze a new trail because there aren't many people in your situation. However, one thing to keep in mind is that all of your friends at some point will lose one or both of their parents as the natural course of life. And when that happens, you are going to have, I don't want to call it a superpower, you're going to have a special skill, a special capacity to be there for them. So wise. And I remember it was such, it was very bittersweet, but it gave me great comfort because I was like, that is one thing I will do because I don't, I knowing that loneliness of grief, anything I can do to help others feel a bit less lonely as they're going through it. And lo and behold, Mo, it started happening not that long after, Mm. right? In your twenties, easily people start having more parents pass away. And it was fascinating to have them see me as an outlet and say, you You do know what I mean here. And And I wasn't afraid to say, I know there's nothing I can say that Mm. will fix this for you. But what I can do here is, again, witness. Mm. I can hold you. I can tell you that it won't be better overnight. But the analogy that I love to use is that when my parents died, and I think when anyone loved dies, it's like there was a piece of my heart that was shaped like my parents. It just got like ripped out. Gone. Oh, I know the feeling. Yeah, exactly. you do. You yeah. do. And it's raw and it's bleeding and it hurts. And your heart is just like hemorrhaging. Mm. But then little by little, day by day, it starts, the scar tissue starts to build. It starts to heal. And then your heart will always have a hole the size of that person or those people. But it's stronger because it's had to reshape itself around them. And so it's that kind of stuff that I can tell others, I can't tell you how long it's going to take to get through that grief, but I can tell you that your heart will restore and be stronger ultimately. That doesn't mean you won't miss them. It doesn't mean you won't be sad at times. That just means there is a path, a unique path for you forward. Beautifully put, beautifully put. I I remember vividly one of the pivotal experiences of my life is when Ali, my son, Mm -hmm. left the world. And in the first, of course, when they leave you, you go and visit their grave. It's mm-hmm. like the, the yeah. last very tiny connection you have to him, even though he's, he was never that body anyway, but I went. Mm-hmm. And, and here in the UAE, Ali left our world in Dubai. So we bury people in the ground mm-hmm. and there is just a tiny stone that doesn't even have the name of the person mm-hmm. on it. Mostly, I mean, some people had names, but mostly none. Mm-hmm. And so the day Ali left, I parked the car literally next to his grave, right? And I, you know, or at least we parked the car where he came in and then we put him in the ground and we left. You know, I stayed next to him alone for a few hours and then I left. I came back the next day and there was another line. I parked, but there was another line of graves between me and Ali. And then, you know, two, three weeks later, there were four more lines. And then four months later, you know, when I go today, I can't even find it. I walk for a long time. And, and we, you start to realize, I call it personalization, that when we go through tough times, we think that the world has chosen us, singled us out from the entire world 
and just threw that hardship on us. But, you know, when you start to count, everyone, like you rightly said, everyone one day will lose someone they love. It's just a fact of life. And so we might as well recognize that flux, as you call it, recognize that this is the nature of life. And, you know, hopefully nobody ever loses anyone they love, but that means that what someone they love will lose them. You, you yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Exactly. It's just, Isn't it's, that interesting though, that if really you have, weird, yeah. if you have your hope of never losing anyone love, but then you will leave at some point, you will still be that, that yeah. hardship, that grief for someone else. It's, it's so but you're so, you're just so spot on. Yeah. yeah. And it is the, the fundamental question of human existence. It's what, what it means to be human is to go through these cycles of feelings and these cycles of life. And yeah, you just, you feel that interconnectedness and you realize, well, actually one thing to, to bring up here a little bit is you might be familiar with um, a gentleman, his name is David Kessler. Mm. And he's <laughs> grief.com. I remember being like, he's been on this grief wagon for a long time if he got the domain yeah. grief.com. But he co-wrote The Six Stages of Grief with yes, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. And I love the way that he has put it. He's um, he's become a friend over the years. Just You want to talk about somebody who has a body of work on this theme. But I love that sense that there is, we are in this together. We are part of a larger community. But he works with people who have experienced lots of different kinds of loss, right? Yeah of parents and siblings and children and all of this. And, and what he said to me once was, or what he has said often is, the greatest grief is always yours. <laughs> yeah. And I love that because he's not saying it's better or worse. Because pe- what I would get is, you lost both your parents. And I'm always like, whoa, I lost both my parents when I was 20, yeah. not when I was five. <laughs> and I know that sounds strange, but like gratitude. Again, it, 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 kicks, it kicked right in for me, which was... Yes, I didn't have my parents nearly as long as I expected, but I had them at all. Mm. I had them long enough that at 20, I wasn't living at home anymore. I wasn't dependent I on had, them exactly. as much. Yeah. And it's just fascinating how that gratitude starts to, it plays through when you lose something or someone, it makes you all the more grateful for what you still have. Yeah. But if you can reset that baseline constantly, I think you're much better placed for life as a whole and all yeah. the flux that will come your way. I mean, if you if you don't have the, the blueberry, but you have the half apple, basically, yeah. you, you sort of remember exactly. that. April, so we we normally say that death or the loss of a loved one, you know, is, is like the biggest challenge ever. And yet 2023, thanks to the mainstream media, they're saying we're going to have mega challenges. I mean, if, if you manage to handle the bigger ones, you're sort of chill like I am. But it's not a secret that it's not an easy year from what we hear. I don't know if it will be. It might be the luckiest year of our life. But, you know, economic challenges, you know, inflation, so many places around the world. There's uncertainty around geopolitics and war. And some big companies has, have started to lay off people. You know, there is stress and change and flux everywhere. How do you look at that? How do you look at a situation like what we're going through? Where does your method or does your approach yeah. come in? Sure. So let me connect what I experienced at age 20 with what's happened since to give you a, couple, a little bit broader perspective on this theme of flux. And then we'll dive right into that question. So, so I realize now that my interest in change and uncertainty began that day when I was thrown into the deep end of what do you do when you don't know what to do? Mm. Obviously, fast forward, and here we are on the cusp of 2023, and we can look back, I say, in particular, at the last 
almost three years and say, wow, yeah. lots of flux. Like, yeah. and what's interesting is I've had people say to me like, oh, this, this book and it like pandemic project. I'm like, no, 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 that's no, a lifetime no I've been at this for a long Written time. In the pandemic. I've been at this for a very long time. Um, however, the last three years have been like a gold mine, a perfect storm for what I'm talking about because I was talking about beforehand and really picking up signals and patterns of how people were relating or not to change and uncertainty. And people would be like, yeah, yeah, it's like, it's interesting. And I know the future means more change and the future is a faster pace of change and fine. And then COVID hit and people were like, oh, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe you have something to say here. Mm. And so on the one hand, I like to say that we have all had a bit of a wake up in the last couple of years. And again, I don't need to be specific about what kind of change you experience. We all experienced some kind of effect of a global public health pandemic. Lots of change there. But I want you to think about, and when I say you, I'm those of you listening, tuning in, mm. personally, how did your life change? Relationships, well-being, definitions of success, whatever it may be. Professionally, mm. what kinds of change did you have? Organizationally, with your team, with your organization, with whatever, and again, not just where you work, but community organizations, you name it. Societally, lots of social reckoning, but even then civilizationally, I mean, some people would say that that climate could be like the mega flux, right? Yeah. And no one knows and no one person's gonna control what happens. But I share this because it's almost like if you're listening, just reflect for a moment on all of the different changes you have experienced yeah. and whether and how you've leaned into them, whether or not they've made you anxious or fearful, um, whether you've tried to deny them or resist them or pretend them away. Uh, and I bring all of this up because change and uncertainty, they're really messy. We treat them as one word, like change. <laughs> the reality is so much more complicated. And I love to, to mention like, these days, I talk to people almost every day about their relationship to change. I'll come back to that in a minute because it's central to the book. But people who will say like, I love change. I'm a change junkie. Bring it on. And I'm always like, hold on a minute. Um, you and I and most humans, we do like a certain kind of change. And that is change we opt into. Yeah. Change we pick. Yeah. A new job, a new relationship, a new adventure, a new haircut, like take your pick. We love that kind of change. I'm talking about the kind of change we can't control. Yeah. The kind of change that blindsides you. Yeah. It goes against your expectations. It disrupts your plans. Yeah. It's I'm not, uncomfortable. It's... It makes you angry. It makes you scared. I'm not worried about the change we love because that's all upside. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. so when we think about something like loss of a loved one, that is the latter kind of change where you're like, I did not, ex I did not expect this. Or if, even if I expected it, I did not want it. Mm -hmm. And this goes against my reality, my preferences, everything. So I bring this up just as a kind of backdrop for how we think about change. And over the years, over the several decades since my parents passed, I began to notice again and again, and again, what I love is it's not unique to a culture. It's not unique to public sector or private sector. It's not unique to your age. In general, humans have a very complicated and fraught relationship to change. Mm. We love the ones we get to pick. We struggle with the ones we don't have. But the challenge is, and I think the last two, three years have put a really fine point on this, 
as we look to the future, there is more of that kind of change ahead, not less. Mm. And so we need to radically reshape our relationship to mm. change and uncertainty in order to have a healthy and productive outlook. Mm. So that's sort of the crux of mm. my work, but I look at it from the perspective of a futurist. That's more of the business angle. I look at it from the perspective of effectively a global citizen. I love, absolutely love looking at how different cultures and societies deal with it. And I love it because every single one has struggled with it. And every single one has developed different ways of talking about it, different Mm. words, concepts, rituals, traditions, you name it. And one is not better than the other. They all just form this collective body of human wisdom. And then I also, of course, approach it as a human being based on my own personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depending on who I'm talking to or what kind of change someone is struggling with, we can pull on any one of those levers or pull any one of those threads to begin the conversation. But that's did, really you, it. did you study at all? Because my, my theory, of course, is that there is no good or bad when it comes to change. Some of the things that we expect will be the best things that we ever have wanted in life turn out to be very disappointing. And some of the things that we expect will be the worst thing that ever happened to us turn out to be a blessing in disguise. Is there good and bad in your, or is it just I like and I don't like? No, you are spot on again. So there is not good or bad. And none of my work is, as you said, like it's not judgmental or prescriptive. And no one culture is better at change than the other. I mean, Mm. if, if one were, we would have all learned from them and kind of shifted course. We've all had different experiences of change hmm. and we all could use some help with change. So I come Enough in at quite that. agnostic yeah. of like, cause find me that person who's like that change that just totally blindsided me, bring it on. That, that person doesn't exist. They're yeah. like, no, please let's remove that from the equation if we could. Yeah. So there's not good or bad. However, one of the central themes of my book, there's a lot about mindset. Mm, and a lot about the flux the mindset. Flux mindset. Yeah. And so I, I'm glad I gave the preface of like, we love changes we pick. We hate changes we can't control. You know, quote unquote, good change would be ones we could pick. Bad change would be like the stuff we don't want to have happen. And I define a flux mindset as the state of mind, which is mindset, the state of mind that can see all change. And mm. here I'll put in air quotes, you know, good change, bad mm. change, mm. expected change, unexpected change. Mm. But especially the hard stuff, the stuff we didn't see coming, the stuff we just wish would go away. Hmm. It's the ability to see all of it, to your point, as an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to improve. To live. And to live. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I sometimes call it like an, it's an attitude. There's a bit of like, it's an attitude. Yeah. It's an attitude of abundance and it's an attitude of optimism, but not naive optimism. Not mm. to say that like bad stuff won't happen. Bad stuff will absolutely, or not bad, difficult, difficult stuff. Yeah. Difficult stuff, tragic stuff, horrific stuff will happen. So it's not naive, blind optimism. It's an optimism that is fundamentally rooted in what is and is not, <laughs> what you can and cannot control. And at the end of the day, to your point, what really matters? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny It's funny when you say that because, of course, like everyone else, I, I go through challenges, mm-hmm. right? 
uh, no one is immune. And I probably go through bigger challenges than people think. I've seen the worst of it all, probably. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's my view, because as you said, you know, everyone's tragedy seems to be the biggest, the greatest mm-hmm. tragedy. But But the thing is, I actually have a serious level of optimism that yeah. whatever will come next, I'll deal with it. Yeah. Right? I, w- I have dealt with everything that came so far and I wasn't prepared when it happened, but I dealt with it somehow with a little bit of pain and a little bit of struggle. And, you know, the next one, if you take just a extrapolation of the chart so far, I think I will too. And that doesn't make me special in any way. That's everyone I know. Yeah. If they're still here, that basically means they've dealt with everything they they struggled with before. Yep. Which is quite eye-opening, but you call it superpower. So so people who do that, who just go through life with that level of optimism or the ability to navigate those challenges, you say they have eight superpowers. Yeah, so the relationship between the flux mindset, sort of the central concept and then these superpowers is that to simplify Opening a flux mindset means acknowledging that your relationship to change can improve. Mm. It means having this, this ability that, that I can grow. I can relate to change better. I'm not saying that you're going to learn that overnight. Cause what's funny is people often ask me like, Oh, you wrote a book about this. You must have it nailed. I'm like, no, I'm exhibit A. <laughs> I'm like working on all this stuff alongside you. What I can tell you is I am so much better than I was five years ago, 10 years ago. I've been practicing. And I think the key here is practice. So long as there is change in the world, which as long as we're alive, there's going to be change. I think there will be. Um, there will continue to be curveballs thrown at us, change that you don't want to see happen, all of that. And so every day gives us a chance to strengthen this flux mindset. And if we think about, I love that this picks up on some of the work that you've done too. Um, if we think about our mindset as a mental muscle, mm. you have to strengthen it just like totally. you would your biceps, your quads, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so when change happens, that particularly the change you didn't want to have happen, every day life is giving us opportunities to practice. Yeah. So the superpowers, opening a flux mindset is, it's, that's not like rocket science. That's acknowledging like, whoa, okay, my relationship to change needs some help. Here are the ways in which I struggle. The eight flux superpowers are the practices, mm. the disciplines, the skills, lots the of habits, terms. Sort mm-hmm. of, yeah. The quote unquote, how to mm. thrive and constant change. Because people say, well, great, I've got this mindset. I'm, I'm working on it what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is where we start. Mm. And I'm always really cautious or want to make sure that people recognize that I picked these eight after, I mean, honestly, just decades of thinking and thrashing through what is really going on. But think of them as a menu, not a syllabus. Okay. So you don't have to do one before two or two before three. You can work on just one. You can try all eight. Usually there are one or two that Whoever I'm talking to, they're like, mm, that fits that's me. what I need. And yeah. hopefully my goal mm. is that there are at least one or two that make you go, uh-uh, not for me. And I'm not going to judge why. It's just that so much, even when you think about change and uncertainty, it's about stretching beyond our comfort zone into the unknown. And everyone has their threshold. Yeah. And a lot of what I do, like so much of what I do is about helping people and organizations see change differently. 
And to see differently requires usually some kind of discomfort. If you're like, oh, that's not quite right. I'm like, perfect. You're going to get there ultimately. <laughs> we, don't need, we don't need to go there now. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if you want, I can run through all eight. Or Let, um, Let's list them and then yeah. I'll, I'll pick my favorite too, if you don't mind. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So I always have to give, let me give a couple more, not caveats, but just sort of round out the context before I dive into all eight. Each of the superpowers is counterintuitive and even contrarian in some mm. ways. And why I say this, again, I want us to go back and think about the world that we were taught we would live in if we did all the right things. Mm. I think a lot of us, myself included, and I think a lot of it over the last century, more or less in the world at large, this belief that if you do X, Y will happen. I that, love that you say this so much. humans can kind of control what's going to happen. I mean, here, my big complaint is uh even the, the term change management yeah i say it respectfully change management is a tool in our toolbox but the notion that we're going to manage change engineer change something happens we are going to put it in its box and tuck it away and i'm like <laughs> that's not the way the world works yeah. so when i say these are superpowers that's, that's the way consultants sell correct so, <laughs> that's well, and, not the and, way it works and part all. of my frustration as a futurist more of the business side of things and why i ultimately was like i have to write this book is I was being part, I was being pulled into so many conversations about change management that were all about what are we going to do? But like, where's our strategy? Where's our plan? Where's our checklist? And yet, and here I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but it's appropriate. No one was talking about how they were seeing that change. And in particular, whether they were seeing a given change from a place of hope or fear. Now, that's not the only question, but that is a fundamental question. Mm. You and I could see the same change, experience the very same change, and you could be hopeful about it, and I could be fearful about it, and that would be totally legit. We're not talking about that. So here we are busy trying to set strategy, but not knowing whether the people around the table, figuratively speaking, are approaching this from a place of hope or fear. And when we do that, we put the cart before the horse. Mm. But we don't talk about things like hope and fear, typically in the workplace. Mm. Um, these things are stigmatized, they're woo-woo, they're whatever. <laughs> so I'm trying to catalyze a different kind of conversation. And so back to the superpowers, what I always like to say is they may not sound like superpowers to you because you're like, that's the opposite of what I was taught mm. because we were taught for a world that somehow we could control. Yeah. These are all superpowers that will put you so much further ahead for a world in flux, for mm. a world full of uncertainty, full of instability, unknowns, etc. You know, what makes me smile about yeah. this is, you know, which is woo-woo? The part that is woo-woo is that belief that the world can be controlled. Yes. <laughs> yes. Woo-woo. Yes. Especially when said to us that by, you know, I, I lived in the corporate world for mm -hmm. so long and I would sit in those meetings and smile in my heart saying, okay, give them a couple of days. Yeah. Until the next spanner falls into a gear somewhere and something goes off yeah. off track and and then they'll say, okay, more strategy, more control. And I'm like, all right, all right, mm -hmm. two more weeks and we'll see what happens. And truly, in my view, which I think is really relatable to your work, the trick is develop the skills so you can take every spanner out of the gear when it falls in there, right? Yeah. It's not about predicting every one of them and managing every one of them. It's a skill. It's like it's almost like telling someone it's a game of tennis. 
And all you need to do is every single time control the other player and make sure that the other player throws you the ball that you can, you know, shoot back. Like, what is that? Exactly. Yeah. And this idea or like, if it doesn't fit into a spreadsheet, it doesn't, it's like <laughs> it doesn't change, exist. change as far as exist. I can tell, yeah. if we can't measure it in numbers, it doesn't, it, like, as far as I could tell change in uncertainty, you just blew your model apart, like yeah. the world that we live in. But you're absolutely spot on. And in addition, building on what you just said, this idea that there will be a change, we will react to it and we will move on versus uh, there will be a change. And while we're trying to sort out that change, 10 other things will change. Exactly. So that what you're trying to solve for is constantly emerging and evolving and iterating and you don't react to it and go back. And I think, you know, after the last couple of years, a lot of people would agree that like, there's no going back. Like what was before has changed forever. But there's still this very strong thread. And again, it's a lot of the social and cultural narratives, again, not unique to one culture. It's quite pervasive in different formats around the world. But this notion that like, okay, got through pandemic. Now, let's go back to, you know, <laughs> let's go back like, to what we know. No. Yeah. And I hope this doesn't sound too sobering because it is an optimistic message. But I do like to remind people, part of why I'm so interested in this space is because the future looks more like the last three years than what came before it. Mm. Now, I don't mean necessarily a pandemic or a great resignation or a war. I don't mean any one particular kind of change, but this constant, relentless change, flux, not knowing. Yeah. That's what we all need to get used to. Because I think a lot of people are like, woo, three years of not knowing. Now let's go back to like, to know. we can yeah. engineer. And it's yeah. like, no, that has forever changed. Just a, a, you know, yeah. a very quick comment. I, I sure. hope, I hope our audience are sensing the sense of chill that both you and I share around this. It's not like we're wishing for the world not to change. It's not like we have to be given a world where it's easy. Mm -mm. It's just that you know you can navigate it. Yeah. You know you can develop the skills to deal with it, which in my work on Unstressable with Alice, uh, we, we talk a lot about anxiety, which mm -hmm. is quite eye-opening when mm -hmm. you think about it because fear and all of its derivatives are centered around a possible threat or challenge in the future, right? So, you know, fear is a moment in the future seems to be a little less safe than this moment. Anxiety, surprisingly, is not about the threat. It's about my ability to deal with it. I feel anxious when I don't believe that I can handle the change that's coming, right? And what we teach is that, well, there is one of two realities there. One is you can't, right? Or the other is that you actually can. And the way to know that you can is that you've handled things before. Mm -hmm. But by the way, if it proves true that you cannot handle the threat that's coming or the challenge that's coming, you might as well start working on yourself and developing your skill for it. And the anxiety will go away. So anxiety is not about removing the stress. It's not about removing the challenge. It's more about building your strength. Yeah. So that when it comes, you can deal with it. I love this. And it's a perfect segue. I know I still need to get to the eight. <laughs> we'll get you but, there. But it's spot on because what I like to remind people as I'm kind of teeing up the superpowers also is that on the one hand, these are not typically taught at business school. Mm. They're not usually in a classroom. They're not part of management curriculum. Uh, they don't require uh, with respectfully to technologists, they don't require any technology or an app or anything. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is each and every human has everything they need 
to develop them. Mm. And so to your point, this idea of if I can't deal with it, I can get started on being a little bit better at it tomorrow. Mm. I can practice every day. It Mm. doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean mastery overnight. But this notion that, and this may be a separate conversation for another day, but we have so much human wisdom, innate wisdom, back to our cells and detoxifying, Mm. but it's been buried by a lot of different societal forces. And I often, you know, I'll say, I know you've mentioned some of this in your work, not just advertising, but like consumerism. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Little bits of capitalism, not not that capitalism itself is bad, but like current flavor of like more, more, yeah. more, more, more. We can get mm-hmm. into that. And then social media, which disconnects us in many ways from ourselves. And so, so much of what I feel like I'm doing, even with the superpowers, it's not just, you can think of it as learning how to develop these superpowers. You can also think about it as unlearning Hmm. All these habits and practices that haven't served us very well because they're fit for a world that doesn't exist. Mm, I love that. And so when you think about it from the perspective of unlearning, it's like you got to let go of a bunch of stuff that's not working. Hmm. And all of a sudden, what does work becomes much clearer and it's much simpler. And it's not, you know, I always joke, doesn't take any technology, doesn't take any money. These are free, mm-hmm. <laughs> free superpowers. Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't want those? And they will help you for every day for the rest of your life. Okay. So I think our wait. listeners are now like, <laughs> like um, okay, if you don't go. tell me, I will yeah. die. Right. So from yeah. the top, I will list these in order in which they show up in the book. But I do like to remind people, you can read the book backwards, go to whichever one you like first. So the first one, actually, you've already channeled it a little bit. Uh, I call it learning how to run slower. Ooh. Now, this is all about anxiety, my favorite anxiety and ever. burnout, but also making wiser decisions. And so the, the one line description here is that in an ever faster paced world, your key to success, thriving, well-being is to learn how to slow your own pace. Did you, did slow you hear mo? this, people? Yes. Did you hear this? Slow <laughs> mo. mo. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But, and what I love is we can talk about this in so many different contexts, whether it's burnout, but whether it's leadership. Totally. And how do you, you know, when do you make your best decisions? When do you show up for others? When do you um, feel most alive? When do you have new ideas? Not when you're running a thousand kilometers an hour. Absolutely. It's not, it doesn't happen. Absolutely. So we can dive. And again, I'll just put these out there and then we can figure out which ones we'll dive into next. The second superpower is called see what's invisible. Hmm. And this is all about how do we, yes, how do we identify not just our blind spots and our taboos, but how do we discover they've always been there, new sources, new opportunities, new insights, new sources of value. There is so much how we have designed today's systems to think about and relate to change and uncertainty leaves all kinds of insights, all kinds of opportunities on the table because effectively they're invisible. I'm just going to use one example. If you can't measure something in dollars and cents, you know, we don't see the value in that. And yet you think about the things that matter most in life, particularly when it comes to navigating change and uncertainty, things like trust and love and compassion. Those matter, but we don't, we can't we don't measure them. We don't measure them and we don't know how to value them. The irony is the moment you try to put a monetary value on something like trust, you've just lost that trust. And <laughs> you think about platforms that have tried to monetize and it's like never goes well. And I think, I think when you call them invisible, it's spot on because the reality is that you may have trust, but you don't 
you don't recognize it, you don't acknowledge it until it goes away. So when it goes away, you suddenly go like, there was something here that I really valued mm -hmm. very much, but when it was here, you were not mm -hmm. counting on it. You yep. were not counting it into your blessings, basically. Yep. And yeah. we're going to come back to that theme yeah. in just a minute. Mm. But I also do want to just point out when I say invisible, it's, it's always a little bit, it can be a little tricky because I always have to be very careful in saying some of what I'm talking about is extremely visible to mm. people who are looking. Uh -huh. But we've designed, and you think a lot about this, this shows up and I'll speak here from more of a U.S. context, um, social justice, mm. how systems are designed for inequality. Mm. Systems are designed to benefit some people and not others. And when change hits, the people it's designed to benefit are fine and the people that are not. Sadly. And I, I bring this up simply to say not invisible per se to people who are really paying attention. Mm. But what's lovely is that when change hits, those things that were, quote, invisible, and a lot of this does have to do with things like privilege, right? The, mm. the privilege of privilege is not noticing the privilege. Say that again. The privilege of, being of privilege yeah. is not noticing How privileged you the are. privilege. Yeah. And when change hits, all of a sudden, that invisible, quote, unquote, privilege becomes seen. Mm. And we have, we've had that happen, I think, around the world in different ways in the last couple of years. But I just, I want to tease out the nuance of invisible because mm. I'm very cautious and just to, to do and signal the right thing. Yeah. That people who have been paying attention aren't necessarily those who are on the front page of the news. Mm. But they've been tracking this. And like, it's just a more holistic sense of what are we looking at and what are we measuring for and what really matters, mm. right? So that's two. Number three is called Get Lost. This is one okay. of my favorites. So this okay. is about- Behave, April. <laughs> yeah, this, get Lost, and not a kind of like, get yeah. out of here. Yeah. Get Lost in that this is about stretching this. beyond our comfort zones yeah. and our relationship flow. to the unknown. Yeah. And here it's how do we go beyond simply trying to learn how to be comfortable with like not knowing where you are, like get, getting lost on the trail or in travels or something, or not knowing where a particular situation is going to land. How do we go beyond that and learn to actively, proactively embrace that kind of disorientation? I love that. Yeah. Cause it's a sort of getting lost means getting lost means getting found, <laughs> you know, totally. oh finding something, not just quote ever. Yeah. yeah. I lived this because, you know, in my executive lifestyle, everything was hyper-organized. I, mm -hmm. I, I shout out to Karina, who was my assistant when mm -hmm. I was at Google, who was brilliant in every possible way. She's one of the smartest people I know. And she was so organized that my life literally, when my flight would be landing, 10 minutes before my calendar would beep and say, put your stuff in the top shelf wow. because the flight is about to land. And then when I land, there is something that says carousel number seven for your luggage. And that she was so organized and my life was so systemic. And then when I stopped and the corporate world toughens you, it makes you hyper-masculine, sadly. I was so missing my flow, my ability to, to connect to that feminine playfulness and just being going with the river rather than forcing the river to go anywhere. And so I, I made two simple rules that I will never decide which city I go. I do a couple of times a year, I do a pilgrimage where mm -hmm. it's not like the old days of, you know, like walking dervishes where I just walk in the desert, but I literally go where life tells me. Mm 
and I have no plans whatsoever. And I only decide the night before I leave a city, which city I will go to next. And then the other funny bit, which really changed me was, and I will never book at the hotel in the new city or the Airbnb or whatever until I've picked my luggage. And it sounds really simple, but those early flights where I was dying, like I don't have a place to sleep, right? And you know, where is my control? Where is Karina's text message? And then you land there and you just pick your phone out and you don't have internet. So you find a way to, to get internet and then you book something and it turns out to be wonderful and cheap because you booked it on the day. And you know, that kind of life is so empowering, getting completely lost with no fear that in a world of abundance, there will always be a way. You know, you know what I mean? It's so beautiful. I do. And what I love is you're, you're just teeing up these wonderful, so I can look at the superpower and say, Mo, like this superpower is already quite strong for you because you're practicing it. And it's a, it's a practice you opted into. You could have done the planning and no, you made a choice to, to gro- and, but this is grooving yeah. this mental muscle. Yeah. And I just love, I love everything about what you just said because it's exactly what we're talking about. And one thing I didn't mention in here is that for this particular superpower, when people are like, how do we get started? I'm always like, the number one is travel. Mm. Travel gives you such a great template. Yeah. Because for most people, travel is a kind of adventure they pick. I'm going to choose to travel somewhere. And within that, I can have a lot of experiences that might feel scary, but I'm guessing the booking things last minute, not only empowering, really freeing. A total freedom. Total like just, freedom. and all of a sudden it's like your, your lungs expand, your heart expands, you yeah. feel lighter. Yeah. Yeah. And you do it, you do it a couple of times and you realize why was I worried about this? Yeah. Right. So one fun side note, this is more my personal history. Um, it was shortly after my parents died when I was, I was admittedly in the throes of grief and I was, I was having a really hard time. A little more context. Both my parents were teachers Mm. and we didn't have a lot growing up. It wasn't about material possessions or money, but the two things we were allowed to spend money on were education and travel. They were real. My dad was a cultural geographer. So So he he studied maps and migratory patterns and, and cultural diversity was a huge theme growing up. But I bring this up because I was on the one hand dealing with, okay, I've lost them. I need to do something with, well, one, I have to be self-sufficient. I have to take care of myself. So I can't just like, just go do nothing. Mm. I have to build a career. But at the same time, I know I might die tomorrow. So it needs to be a career that makes sense to me and is (laughs) is contributing to society. But then also like, I need to do something that would make my parents proud because now like I have this, it's, I don't know if it's guilt or pride or who knows what, but that's a problem. And all sorts of other things, including some mental health challenges and just depression and, and whatnot. But I share this all because in between undergraduate and graduate school, when my mentors were saying, you need to go work at a consulting firm or a bank. And I was like, no, I don't. But what do I need to do? And I remember I was 21 when I, I wonder if, how I would feel if the tables were reversed, but I had some extended family members who were concerned about me. Hmm. And they were like, okay, you're not going to go do that. What are you going to do? And hmm. I was like, my plan is not to have a plan. They were oh, like, yes. oh boy. Sounds 21. Oh boy, exactly. Well, 21 with no parental oversight, right? Lots as of if, energy. As if there is ever parental True. oversight. True. Well, what was fascinating, and I know I'm taking a bit of a tangent here, but I, I hope it's helpful to at least some of the folks listening in. It was an interesting combo in my 20s where I had lots of ideas and energy. I've always had like abundant energy. 
um, I had a very clear sense of how fragile life was, a kind of, not a death wish, but I truly didn't think I had long to live. It was irrational, but like, mm. and I had no parental accountability, meaning if I could figure out a way to do something, there was no no, no one to tell to me no. Dummy. But, but I had to figure it out and I had to take responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting mix because I was like, okay, my plan's not to have a plan, but I knew it was important, particularly my parents did expect me to go on to graduate school. They did expect me to contribute to society. They did not necessarily expect me. It wasn't about making a bunch of money and having a fancy title. It was contributing to the greater good. But I realized how little I knew about the world and the one, so education and travel. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I do know that I want to see more of the world and find a way to travel and find a way to understand how does the rest of the world live? Yeah. And so long story short, I spent four years without a permanent address, mm. with a backpack. This is pre-Airbnb, pre-small. I didn't even have a mobile phone. Yeah. This was nothing. This was getting off the bus and having the grandma be right. like, you look interesting. You're a single young female. You'll stay with I me. I was just going to say, and you're not even, you don't even look like me with oh, a beard no. and a muscular No, I'm the bed. young blonde who's like, you must be lost. Speaking of get lost. And actually, that's the, the, the intro to that chapter is the story of me in, uh, rural Romania shortly after the Iron Love Curtain comes down. Yes. Bukovina. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever been to Bukovina, mm -hmm. these painted monasteries backside yeah, yeah, of beyond. Yeah, beautiful. yeah, this was back when there were dirt roads. They were not a UNESCO heritage site, but I had read about them in my art history class and <laughs> I was going to find my way there. So I get people single blonde fair-skinned what in the, the world she is yeah. she is clearly lost and mm. people would be like how can you travel on your own that must be frightening and scary what they didn't realize is what they saw as a liability being young and female and solo and stress? foreign was my asset greatest asset because grandmothers in particular across the board were like you have to be lost yeah. here. Come in. Yeah. Let me take care of you. Let me feed you. Let me show you around. I had families open their doors left, right, and center precisely because I was solo and female. That's so which is fascinating. Mm. But I bring this up because back to those four years, um, to earn income, I researched and guided hiking and biking trips around the world. Got oh, this job as a tour guide, which was so much mm. fun, which gave me enough income not to pay a mortgage or raise a family but plenty of income to go to And exactly. So I did that for four years. But back to your point about my routine was not having any idea when I woke up that morning where I would sleep that night. I knew where I was heading on my itinerary, but we'll figure it out. And I don't think I appreciated at that time because I was so focused on other things like the grieving and the what am I going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. But I realize now that I was grooving that that superpower. I was really getting comfortable with the not knowing, but learning to celebrate it. I got so excited about where might I be tonight? I don't know, but it's going to probably be, it was always cool. Even if it wasn't necessarily comfortable or luxurious, it was something new. It was mm -hmm. something that taught me something, exposed me to something different. It's so. so beautiful. I, I believe one of my favorite times of my lifetime was my best friend, actually one of my best friends until today, and I went to Italy. Mm -hmm. We didn't speak a word of Italian mm -hmm. other than non capizzo d'Italiano, which, which basically, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm saying it right anymore, but it means yeah. I don't speak I don't Italian. Italian. Non capisco Italiano. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then we booked a train ticket mm -hmm. that allowed you to get on any train mm -hmm. across Italy anytime you wanted. And basically our, we don't know anything. So 
If it was time to sleep, we would book destinations. We would just go to, get on a train that is seven hours or more away so that we can sleep on the <laughs> yeah. train and then pop up the next morning in a place you have no idea what that place is, right? But they still had amazing coffee. They still had Italians, which are like the most wonderful humans ever. Yeah. And, you know, on day three, it just became a habit. You knew what you were doing and you got met with people and you chatted with them. And just, you know, what makes you the most afraid, that uncertainty, ends up being the ride of your life. Exactly. Uncertainty, exactly. the ride of your life. Just remember that for 2023. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. Keep going. Yeah. I know this is this is one. Well, uh, we have all we day. Three. I will give a shout out to Italians as well because I, <laughs> amazing I, humans. Yes, and I have um, a particular. I actually during that time I had a Fulbright fellowship for one year in Italy during this mm. time of massive uncertainty, and it's it is a language that I speak, and oh, there's no place that I'd rather though the getting lost there and the Italians doesn't matter. Three, do you speak three words. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> no, no. That's my, like the play. funniest thing is people would walk into the train at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. So they would open that compartment yeah. me and my friend had and they sit down <laughs> and they start talking to us. And we would say, non capito d'italiano. <laughs> we don't speak Italian. And they would continue and speaking. And they would continue speaking. <laughs> no they're, and they're happier there. And yeah, yeah. thank you for visiting. And <laughs> yeah. like, all good. And you could pass it for being. I could, pro- I could, I could do Italian. Yeah. This is so kind of you because yeah. I think they're handsome. So thank you so yes, much. Very nice sure. of you. For yeah. sure. But back to hospitality it's funny because mm-hmm. italians but also i will say here in the uae like it's just yeah i could there pass is this, as an emirati as you well, could so. certainly but, but that sense of like getting lost yeah. isn't as scary as you make Absolutely it out to not. me it's the fun of your life yeah, yeah. it really is so moving on i you channeled this earlier so the fourth made it through three run slower see what's invisible get lost the fourth superpower which i call the super superpower i'll come mm-hmm. back to that is start with trust. So this is about how we nurture relationships and navigate change together. And I call it the super superpower because as far as I can tell, we can debate this, as far as I can tell, when it comes to navigating change well over time, no one thing matters more than trust. And when I say trust, you can think about this. When you're de- dealing with change and uncertainty, I need to be able to trust that, trust you, other yeah, people. I need system. to trust that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Yeah. I need to be able to trust myself. Yeah. That if I don't know, I will learn. That if I learn, I will share. That I will put one foot in front of the other. That this will have a, doesn't have to be a solution or a resolution, but that this has a future. This has life. And so, yeah, start with trust. And- but, but it's mm-hmm. so, so interesting that you say start with trust. Right. Start because start. most of us don't, right? Correct. Most of us start with doubt. Well, and we get into not just the self doubt, which is often the biggest hurdle of all, but also how in today's society we have designed so many of our systems, Around our institutions. Threat. Entire sectors around the basic assumption, mistrust, the basic assumption that the average individual, and that's the key, the default, what's the default? Mm. If you don't know, you don't know somebody, do you trust them or not? Default is no. Yeah, but the system says uh, no. Yeah. Absolutely. I am of the belief that there are bad apples here and there. Um, I'm not going to be naive. There are more really good humans than there are. And yet we're living in a system that is designed to stamp that goodness out. Mm. And so actually there's a section in the chapter on what does it mean? What does it look like? Start with trust is the superpower. But 
what does it look like to design for trust? Yeah. Design from trust. Design. And again, it's so beautiful. What's interesting is you just, you break the default, you reset the default. Yeah. And you treat mistrust as as the, as the, the exception, anomaly, yeah. not the rule. Yeah. And it changes everything. But you see, this is the beautiful thing is because when you design for it, the way you describe it, mm-hmm. it shows up in your life more. So even yes. if there are very few bad apples, when you're dealing with the world from a point of view of trust, those bad apples are less likely to show up in your life. The ones that are trustworthy show up in your life because of what you're advertising. Because what you're bringing, exactly. Right. And I always I always tell people, it doesn't mean that you won't get burned. Yeah. It doesn't mean that this will work perfectly. But what it means, two things. One is we just throw out so much goodness Yeah. when we start with mistrust. So you get all of the goodness back in. But also, and this might sound a little bit existential, but you know, at the end of the day... How do I want to have lived my life? Mm. Showing up, seeing the good in people or showing up being like, Mm-mm, nobody. And so even when you get burned, because it will happen from time to time. Yeah, but you monitor um, for it as well. I mean, don't, 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 don't be naive, but don't pre-assume, right? Precisely. Yeah. And also you have this, you do attract more of that goodness into your life, but you also start to see when things don't work out as you expect. Again, you have this ability to see it as part of a, bigger, there's a bigger backdrop, a bigger narrative that there's an opportunity for growth right here. Yeah. But yeah, and it's, this is fascinating in the book and stuff. You can, it goes much deeper, but like when you do a kind of audit of how trust or mistrust shows up in your life, it's really eye opening Yeah. and really revealing. Cause again, just like hope and fear, this isn't something we talk about that often. Mm. We just, we're taught don't trust strangers as a kid. And then you grow up and yeah. all of a sudden it's baked into your psyche. But then you start realizing, like, what are my mechanisms for understanding trust? Mm. Do I start with trust or mistrust? Like when you meet someone new, do you tend to assume that everyone is untrustworthy until they do something positive to earn your trust? Or do you assume that everyone is trustworthy until they do something foolish there you go. to fall out of your trust? There you go. But we don't normally, you know, and those are, that's a cycle that's running in our brain all Absolutely. the time, but we don't realize yeah. it. Yeah. And so I, a lot I, of this. For, for me, I think it goes even deeper. I, I always refer back to one of my dearest friends, a, a gentleman called Sam, who is a shrewd businessman. Mm-hmm. Like he's, 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 um, um, he has so much chivalry in him, mm-hmm. but he's shrewd. He's really, he really knows how to do business. And we did business together a lot of our earlier years. And I wasn't as good as Sam is. And there is a point at time where you, in time where you just simply say, hold on, I trust that he's making the right decision, mm-hmm. even if it sounds wrong to me. But obviously he has enough references in our experience together to say he finds the right opportunities, he invests properly, he does it properly, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And I think the continuity of distrust is such a plague in our life. It's like yeah. you can have someone, some people have someone in their life that has never, you know, betrayed their trust, mm-hmm. but they still don't don't fully trust because somehow it's conditioned within us that the system is eventually going to show you that you were yeah. wrong to trust. Yeah. I, I will say openly, I think it, it, even if sometimes you get burned, the, the resultant of all the trust advances you much further. Oh, 
And the instances in which any person gets burned compared to the instances of abundance and goodness. Absolutely. There's no, I have yet to find any. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, go to Italy. If you, do, if you don't trust that, go, yeah. go to the train in Italy and see how wonderful everyone is. Avoid the North a little bit, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. But the abundant, the goodness of people. Again, because of system design, so much of that remains. And this is where, so going back, I said each of the superpowers are um, independent. They stand on their own, but they do enhance one another. Like yeah. you, you start to practice one and you start to see the others a little bit differently. Again, you start to start with trust and you start to see all that invisible goodness and value mm. that we've buried mm. because we've designed things from mistrust. So mm. back to see what's invisible. Mm. You start to unearth some of that. Mm. When you run slower, you start to pick up all of these things that we haven't been seeing because we've been running so fast after a thousand things because, you know, when you run fast, you actually, that tends to be a signal of fear. Hmm. That tends to be where mistrust kicks in. I mean, they're, they're kind of related. Yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. Because I actually think of all of the eight, as I was looking more and more into your work, of all eight, the one that first came to mind was actually the fifth one. Hmm. So the fifth superpower is called Know You're Enough. Oh, yes. Absolutely, you are enough. Which is, and it's both Y-O-U-R and Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Mm. This is about our obsession with more, 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 mm. but more fundamentally, our quest for true happiness. Yeah. And here the punchline is, and we can go, I go into the history of like, this obsession with more, not just more money or more power, but more likes, more clicks, more clothes, more cars, more everything, is not how humans have lived for most of human history. Mm. It is very much, and not to say we haven't had inequality or people with more and with less, that has existed over time. You've had kings and whatnot. But the idea of more, 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 and that your value is tied to how much you have is a very modern phenomenon that can be traced in large part to the advent, you'll like this, of consumer mass marketing. Completely. And so I start to unpack that because for me, I'm, of course, I'm looking at all of this through the lens of change and uncertainty. And what happens when change and uncertainty really hit? The more you have, the harder it is to pivot, the harder it is to actually redefine what really matters. And the way I describe this superpower is that when you're always after more, you will never like categorically, I don't like absolutes, but this is an absolute, you will never find enough. Yeah. By design, it can't work because yeah. what happens when you get more? You, you want more. more. Yeah. But when you know you're enough, so while you are, your point of what I define as your point of sufficiency and harmony, satisfaction, which includes knowing that you are enough mm. and that you always have been since the day you were born, despite all the garbage that social media and the news and, and society at large feeds us, when you know you're enough, you will immediately begin to see abundance. So beautiful. So that's the, that was the one when I was looking, I was like, we could probably have a conversation just on this. For a few <laughs> hours on that. I mean, the truth is it, 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 you're so spot on. And actually in times of uncertainty, you know, when my lovely daughter, for example, will say, Papa, what's going to happen, right? And, and I basically tell her, baby, there is so much, so much that we can live without in life. And that's not because I was successful. I, 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 you know, I'm not as rich as people think at all, but because I gave a lot away. But, but the idea is I can assure you 
those t-shirts i've upgraded now to 12 dollar t-shirts instead yes. of four there you go <laughs> right but you know i could probably extend their life by another year you yeah. know and and i could definitely you know um, live with so much less and i think what's what's happening in our modern world is people think of disasters when they talk about economic crises coming up worst case scenario is that the economy will go down to what it was 2017. We, people don't realize that, right? And and it's just because we, we're unable to say, but it was wonderful in 2017. It's just like we want one more. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to get my bonus this year, so I'm not going to go on vacation. But vacation is really not it, uh, you know. This yeah. is, and I think people, you know, even if you lose your job and even if you lose, there are some certain things in life that matter. Other things you're just used to because of how you're conditioned to want more and more and more. It's crazy. It's exactly your point about the delta yeah. between events and your life as it is, minus yeah. your expectations of there them. And it's go. like, if you have an expectation of more, 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 which it's nobody satisfied. to your point is what, like, and we are not born into this world demanding or expecting more. Mm. It's taught. Yeah. We are learned. Yeah. And we, we learn to, to think this way. And so again, back to the unlearning, we can also learn to unlearn, but it's hard because the societal forces, it's deeply ingrained today. But again, this focus, just consumer mass marketing, we can date it back to the 1920s. It's roughly a hundred years old in its current form. That is a blip in terms of overall human history. Yeah. And to say that we, we can totally get it back, we can design something different, but it takes the self-awareness. Yeah. And then also the the will to to do things differently, but it's funny too because I even researched the etymology of the word enough. Like where does it come from? Mm. And it's fascinating because across multiple languages, that for most of human history, the goal was to have enough, yeah. which is not too much and not too little. Right? Yeah. Not too little is a different situation, and that is not what we want to be at yeah. either. But I love two things. One is for most languages. The word enough is rooted in the word or the phrase, the meaning to carry. Hmm. So enough was how much you could carry, carry ah. for you. And, and how are you defined it, right? You and your family. But hmm. like that was enough. Yeah. Because more than that, you can't carry it. It's not yeah. going anywhere. It works against you now. And yeah. what I love, just bringing back a different theme we were talking about, is travel. Yeah. Oh, Do you, you want to travel with you more learn. than... No, you want to have a piece of luggage that contains your t-shirts and your underwear, like just enough. But anything beyond that is excess and you do not want Absolutely. it. Absolutely. But you also don't kilograms. want to, yeah. Exactly. And you also don't want to not have a winter jacket. Should you need one? But yeah. you only need one, one winter jacket. You don't need 10. Yeah. But it's fascinating because this whole notion of to carry. Yeah. And where did that go sideways? Right? Hmm. I always cite the fridge as a turning point. Once you had, until you had a fridge, you yeah. just had bought Fresh what you need for, for that day, for the day couple days, right? Yeah. And, and you could never plan further than that. And then suddenly now you have a fridge and a freezer yeah. and an extra freezer. And, and the funny thing is, honestly, I tell people, don't think back to the 1920s. Just think back to three years ago, yeah. five years ago. Life was okay. What if, what's wrong if I return back to five years ago and lose the progress? We're better. I don't <laughs> say better or worse, but yeah. like, you know, there was a, there was a certain kind yeah, certainly. Ago, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember with my wonderful ex-wife when we got married. I remember vividly by the 26th of the month, there wasn't enough to eat and we would go visit our parents and 
you know, it was wonderful. Or, you know, we would eat the leftovers and life was so, and I, I can do that again. I can skip a couple of meals. It doesn't have to be more and more and more and more and more. I think yeah. it's so inhuman. In, yeah. It's, what is it? It's enough is plenty. Yeah. More than plenty. I love that. Yeah. Enough is plenty. Yeah. So keep going. Six. Yeah. Six. So this one is unique in that it is of the eight. It's probably the most like practical, tactical, and it's all about your professional journey. So the sixth superpower is what I call create your portfolio career. I love that. This is all about how to design and own your career in a way that's fit for a future of work in flux. And this really gets into the shape of our careers. And I think many of us, myself, I'm guessing you to some degree too, not, not your whole life, but at some point, you know, we were taught that success in a career looks like a ladder to climb, hmm. linear path to pursue to ever higher plateaus. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's one option, but hmm. it is an option that is working for fewer and fewer people. Hmm. And Right now, the inner world in flux, and here you can think about this individually, great resignation, layoffs, people redefining what success really looks like, work-life balance, whatever. You can look at this organizationally, HR. You can look at the fact that it's never been easier or cheaper to build your own venture, to mm. earn income in more ways than ever. Mm. And so all of a sudden you go, wait, career ladder? So the way I describe this is that the successful career shape of the future looks less like a ladder, doesn't look anything like a ladder to climb, and more like a portfolio to curate as an artist or an investor would. And so then we get into like, what does that look like to curate it? And I know already you have a portfolio, a very rich and robust portfolio. But this really, we start in this chapter, we start getting into issues that are more about your identity as well. Yeah. And how identity is in flux, but also this definition of oneself as what you do and yeah. just how unhelpful and inaccurate that is. Yeah. I think I'd like to make that point clear because most people will, if you look at it as a ladder, the only thing you can do is to try to stick within that ladder. Mm -hmm. While for most of us, there are other skills that we have that we never really focus on or give enough attention and time to because we are focused on the ladder. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean that you leave the ladder necessarily. But you can, you can use your 6 p.m. hour instead of binge watching Netflix after work. You can use it to do something else or to try something else or to learn something else and build that portfolio that basically is more fit for what the future is going to look like. And it's fit for different kinds of combinations and iterations. Yeah. And, you know, I always like to remind people and you're spot on. Sometimes people think, oh, wait, is this like anti-job? I'm like, no, no, no. Your job is absolutely part of your portfolio. It's part of the portfolio. portfolio it's not the portfolio. whole portfolio. This is not about going and everyone being their own boss. No, like there's a part of it that can be that. What it's really getting at is that the traditional resume or CV, which is how we judge a lot of people professionally, mm. reflects only a fraction yeah. of who you are and what you can do. And often, in my experience, not even the most interesting part. <laughs> True. But also when you think about back to the skills that people might have, channel to see what's invisible again. I call this invisible talent, invisible skills. And the example I often use is parenting. Mm. So parenting skills, not typically on your resume, right? For women, at least in many parts of the world, that's a ding. You do not want to communicate that you're a parent. Mm -hmm. And yet parenting skills are super skills yeah, for so conflict management, yeah. <laughs> time management, mm -hmm. 
stress management. Stretch, you name it. Human connection. And yet they're completely invisible from the hiring process, mm. from how we look at what we can do professionally. And so a lot of this, your portfolio is just, it's so much more mm. than your resume. It includes mm. a much fuller reflection of who you are and what you can do. But also, and again, because this is through the lens of change and uncertainty, it's again, a little, I don't want to sound like it's bitter medicine, but I always have to remind people that even if you have a job that you love and that you're really good at, if it's a job that someone else gave you, that job can be taken away through no fault of your own or their own. And nobody might want it to happen. It's bad change. It can happen. Mm -hmm. Unlike a job, your portfolio can never be taken away. Mm. And in this world and looking to 2023 and potential layoffs and all that sort of stuff, I like to tell people that like, it doesn't solve everything like a crystal ball, but in this world in which there is so little you can control, ownership of your portfolio is something you can. 100%. And every person on the planet, whether or not you've ever earned income, whether or not you're a teenager and haven't even been to college yet, whatever it may be, every person already has a portfolio. Absolutely. And even if you don't realize unique, it. And a unique Correct. portfolio that makes them a valuable asset. Correct. If they know what it is and are communicating within it. And the communication is key. And I'll yeah. leave this for a, it's again, it's too deep for today, but um, it's what I call the portfolio narrative, mm. which is, you know, I, my own portfolio. I now realize I've always had a portfolioist approach, but throughout my life, for most of it, it was stigmatized. People say like, your resume is going to make no sense. Like, what do you do? Because basically I've been a lawyer. I've been an investor. I'm a certified yoga teacher. I was a hiking guide. I was, you know, <laughs> I've done all of the, I worked in water and sanitation and financial inclusion. And people would be like, wow, you do this and this and this and this. What do you do? Right? <laughs> and now I realize we didn't have language for this. But what's lovely is as a cross pollinator, pulling on all the different pieces in my portfolio makes me qualified to do more than I would if I just had the yeah, straight line. Absolutely. I bring this up simply because everybody, everybody has this, but the key is my resume, just to use me as an example, depending on how I communicate that narrative, I can look totally scattered. Like she just can't even hold a job. Like what is she doing? She's, she's all over the place. Or it can look like, wow, one plus one equals 11. Yeah. This and she's walked us through it. And so for people, everyone here to know that crafting that narrative and connecting the dots for others, that's key. And that will make you often the best qualified candidate because. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal experience is when I joined Google X, it was at the time for Project Loon. Project mm -hmm. Loon was that high altitude balloon yeah. that were going to offer internet to the whole globe, basically. And I made a very conscious choice in my career where I basically said, I'm going to focus on emerging markets for as mm -hmm. long as I can. It's where the impact is, it where, where it makes a, a big difference to people. And so when X was looking for a chief business officer, there were probably 100,000 people in America that would have fit the job more. But Loon was very big on the portfolio. And I was one of the very few that knew emerging markets very well, had an extensive in-depth telco experience uh, in my life was a techie myself. So I wrote code and mm -hmm. I understand all of that, but also a businessman and completely aware of that 
new world where, where Bloon was going to serve. Mm -hmm. And so my entry was not because I was the best chief possible chief business officer, but it was because of the portfolio. And the, yeah. and, and the portfolio is what makes you unique if you mm -hmm. think about it. Yeah. It's incredible that. that you bring this uh, this on. And, and I think when it when times are tough, when we're in flux, I think the idea is you need to really look deep into your portfolio and see what parts of your portfolio are fitting for what's coming up, yep. right? Correct. Exactly. Number exactly. seven. Number seven. Okay, we can go through the last two, I think pretty quickly. I don't Although think, maybe not. I don't, I don't think know. you and I can do that. <laughs> so the seventh superpower is be all the more human. Now this one gets at, there are a couple different angles to this, but the main one is it's about our relationship to technology yeah. and the tension we face in that we're spending ever more time with our devices yes. and yet ever less time with one another. Right. And again, lens of change and uncertainty is simply that, and I say this respectfully, I mentioned you earlier, I was born and raised in San Francisco, Silicon Valley in the back door. Like I'm very comfortable. I've worked with a lot of technology companies. I'm not I am not anti-tech in any way, shape, or form, but I do see it as a tool and not as a holy grail. And my concern is that the more devices we have in our pockets, the more apps on our phone, the more, and again, this is a subtle, very subtle, but very powerful mental cycle feedback loop, which is technology can solve our problems, but technology can solve change. So change happens, pull up my app, you know, and GPS, okay, it can help, or ways, it can help you get from point A to point B. Fine, that, that is solving kind of change, change of traffic. But when capital C big change hits, the people with more devices and apps who are more of the technology will solve it are actually the ones who struggle more. Totally. When it comes to the, no, I actually have to look within. I have to get totally comfortable. No app will solve this. Yeah. Or when your battery runs out and you don't have Google Maps anymore. Bingo. There you go. Bingo. We all need to know how to navigate with old yeah. school. Ask for directions. Oh what my What happened goodness. to that? What happened I to know, that? It's I like, know. stop, go in the store, buy Ask a Coke. Someone. It might the, mean engaging with a human, but guess what? That's good that's for humans it, and humanity. Yeah, and for you and for everyone. And learn it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's the seventh one. And then the final one is the eighth flux superpower is let go of the future, which Oof. before people would say, wait, as a futurist, you can't even say that. How dare you? I will not clarify, but give a little more context around this. Fundamentally, this is about our relationship to control. Yeah. So when I say let go, I do not mean give up. I do not mean failure. I mean letting go of outdated beliefs and assumptions on a lot of different metrics, how the world works, what really matters. And also, and I joke with my editor, if they'd given me more space in the title, <laughs> I would have said this is letting go of our obsession with wanting to predict and control the, in quotes, future, because there is no one future, but rather many different possible futures that we are all contributing to yeah. every day. Remember the so, word singularity. There you I go. I think that we're in a place where, you know, I, I find that incredible that people don't see this. Life is not a journey. You don't plan up front and say, okay, with all of the money I have right now and the availability of flights and all of this, I'm going to be in the Maldives on that day from this to that, and I'm going to eat this in the morning. And you don't, that's not life. <laughs> Until life, life happens. Yeah. And then you're life, like, oh, not that. <laughs> exactly. Life is a quest. It's Christopher yeah. Columbus getting his crew yeah. on a ship 
and saying, okay, let's take a couple of steps forward, stop, reflect, see what's going to happen. Yeah. And then, you know, respond to that. Yep. And this echoes a lot, some of what you were saying earlier, the difference between predicting. And again, as a futurist, I just got so frustrated. Any any person, futurist or not, who tells you they can predict X, Y, or Z, that is a signal that they cannot. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a really easy filter. But it's not about predicting any one future. It's about preparing. Exactly. For many different possible ones, none of which are likely to happen as they exist. But what will happen is one thread from this one and that one. And they're like, oh, I imagine that happening. And I'll I'll just bring this back to a personal story which relates to happiness in the aftermath of my parents' deaths where I'm sitting there going like, I have no, truly no clue what Mm. my future holds. Whatever I thought it held, I thought it included parents, you know, Mm. whether it was a career or this degree or like beside that, it was like all of that just kind of melted. And before, long before I knew what scenario planning was or futurism or anything like that, I, as part of my grief process, I started walking myself through, I, I just have no idea, but hey, let's try to map out what are some of the different ways your life could turn out. And at that point... Maybe married, maybe not. Maybe kids, maybe not. Maybe living in my hometown, maybe living halfway around the world. Maybe going to grad school. Like, truly, it was just What's this possible? blank canvas. Yeah. And they all looked wildly different from one another. And then I tried to walk myself through, in each of these scenarios, could I be happy? Oh, I love that. So and it was much. fascinating because I was like 21, 22, and I was just raw. And I don't know what possessed me to go through this exercise because I hadn't read about it, but it was like how I was trying to make sense of this blank canvas, which now felt both very scary, but also to your point, if I could get myself there, it was empowering and freeing, being like, you can write your script, you have to take responsibility, you have to take care of yourself, but like, there's no one, you have to answer to yourself. And that ability to realize that in these wildly, wildly different futures, there was a joy I could in be happy. Yeah, there was joy All of a sudden, everyone. I was like, I'm going to let go and let life happen. Because I think the more I try to say it's going to be this, but not that, the more fraught, anxious, sometimes sad, I'll feel. And so again, you realize that letting go for a lot of people sounds, by its nature, it sounds scary. Yeah. But in fact... It's the fear of not knowing. It's the anxiety of not being able to let go. Letting go is actually one of the most empowering, freeing, and powerful skills we can have. It's where real power lies, so to speak. Which, when you really think about it and realize that you're almost always okay. Like, unless there is a disaster in your life, you're almost always okay. The reason why you're not happy is because you're disappointed that this okay is not the okay that you wanted. Right. And if you're open to, hey, by the way, there are 14 different threads or every possible combination between them. And I'm, I can see happiness in every one of them. I can see how I can enjoy that, that configuration. There's no disappointment. Yeah. Provided that you're okay, then you're okay and happy. Yes. And the, the one that I'll just give a hark back to the super, super power that I mentioned of trust. Mm, trust Even if, even if crisis hits, if you have one, trusted relationship in your life, mm. even if crisis hits, you're okay. You're going to be okay. You're okay. I love that. And you're not facing it. Facing things alone with no trust is just extraordinarily hard. 
because mm. you do feel like you're on an island. Mm. But it's not about that other person being able to fix the problem. It's the matter. It's knowing that you have human connection and that you can put one foot forward. And that again, not to sound too trite, but like the sun will rise tomorrow. Mm. There will be another shot at all of this and let go of the rest because it's going to just going to make you miserable. Hey, so Kat. there you have it. I cannot tell you how much I love you. You're wonderful. You really are. You brought so much. You're so generous. And it's so timely, honestly. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this our, our opening podcast for the year. We have a few rewinds, uh, you know, my favorites, uh, from last year that we're going to be, that we probably by now have already played. And then, uh, I will ask people to really listen to this a few times. April's book, Flux eight superpowers for thriving in constant change is phenomenal. I, I advise everyone to take a look and read it. And I would ask you to take the next weekend. I don't know where you are, when you are to just consider which of those are you going to integrate in your life in 2023 to go slower, to see the invisible, to get lost, get lost people to start with trust, to uh, know you're enough and that you are enough to work on your portfolio rather than your job or whatever life has given you to be more human and to uh, let go of the future, let the future become your journey whenever it's unfolding. Cannot thank you enough. Honestly, it's thank such you, a wonderful conversation and you're such a wonderful human. And I am so grateful that you came all the way here. I'm going to work with my contacts here in the Emirates to make sure you don't leave so that we have, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, me. I'll be back. I want to come back. I love it here. It's really I love wonderful. it here. And, uh, and, uh, for all of you listening, I, I don't know what to tell you other than I really advise that you go back and listen to this one more time, but also read the book because April puts tons of very relevant stories uh, on uh, on how to in you know to include those in your life. It's going to be an interesting year, but for a gamer like me, interesting is fun. For a gamer like me, interesting is when you put your best self and just engage fully and play the best game that you can play. But I can promise you we're going to be fine. It's just that we're going to have to learn how to navigate that change, not to survive, but rather to thrive. And I hope that you see that as your strength, April. Yes. Any last words? Yeah, actually, I love that I didn't mention this before, but the word flux is both a noun and a verb. So we need to oh. learn how to thrive in constant yeah. change. Flux as a noun means continuous change. As a verb, it means to learn to become fluid. So we all need to learn how mm. to flux mm. in this world in flux. And mm. I was just going to mention for people who want to learn more articles, snippets, what were those eight superpowers? Um, without, I would love, please read the book, but you can learn more also at fluxmindset.com. And I've made a lot of information yeah. available publicly Fl there. Fluxmindset.com. And do get in touch with uh, both me and April and mm. tell us what you think. I think this was a wonderful conversation. I'm really, really grateful for Thank your generosity. Thank you so much, Mom. For all of you listening, remember when I asked April what the um, eight superpowers are and she started by saying slower, go slower <laughs> because life is so fast. And I would remind you if you, you know, if you were to include any of the eight, you want to include the idea of being slower so that you can include the other seven. Life is so fast for us. And we don't ever stop to reflect on what we need, what life is sending our way. We don't reflect to on our strengths and what we can do with them. So yeah, remember whatever you're doing this week, there's always a little bit of time to slow down. 
and I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.